Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Lord Jesus, from the time of recorded history, the story has been about you. Help us see that in your word, that we would be encouraged to live a life of faith for the gospel in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Good morning. I have been uh, excited about doing this series. I've actually wanted to do a series on this theme for a very long time, and that is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I think it's safe to say that uh, more and more preachers and authors in recent years have uh, taken the mode of kind of avoiding the Old Testament and, and then those that actually do go to the Old Testament, uh, in large measure, they just look for the really great um, stories that, that make for really good moralistic sermons, like, like be courageous the way David was courageous when he fought Goliath, or believe that God can use even the hard circumstances in your life to do good things as he did in Joseph's life. If those are the best things that we can glean from the Old Testament, then I kind of understand why a lot of gospel preachers avoid those passages. Because the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if if the best we can do from the Old Testament is passages that have little to do with Christ directly, but that talk about good things that come from God's hand, then those, those would have to be kind of low on the priority list when it comes to equipping the saints for the Great Commission. <laughs> Some have even said in recent times that the preaching of the Old Testament is getting in the way of reaching this generation with the Gospel of Jesus. They've, they've said some quite directly that that what is needed is for us to unhitch the New Testament church from the Old Testament so that we can reach the modern generation with the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, if there's anyone here who finds any of that persuasive, I'll tell you right up front that my zealous objective in this series is to utterly destroy every such notion about the Old Testament. Okay? So if you have any uh, sympathy for those perspectives, uh, prepare to be challenged from Scripture. 
And the reason that I have a great zeal in wanting to blow those ideas out of the water is because they are patently anti-biblical. In fact, they stand directly opposed to that which the Bible declares of itself. Indeed, they stand directly opposed to what the New Testament claims about the Gospel, which is that the good news of redemption and life in Christ is the universal, relentless testimony of both testaments of Scripture. And we're going to see that with great clarity between now and the time we finish this brief series. If we're not proclaiming and teaching the miraculous continuity of all of Scripture around the person and work of Jesus the Christ, then we're preaching a compromised gospel. At best, we're preaching a gospel with a bunch of teeth missing. And we're stuffing in a closet the single greatest proof that we have been handed that the Christ of the Bible is the real thing. There is no more compelling apologetic for the Bible's witness concerning Christ than the linear, relentless, undistracted focus of both testaments of the Bible on one person. And that's Jesus. The Christ. The Son of the living God. The Son of David. The Son of Man. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our specific goal in this first installment this morning is to demonstrate very conclusively (laughs) that the Gospel of the New Testament isn't new. That the New Testament Gospel is the Old Testament Gospel. And that the New Testament says that the Old Testament is about Christ. Okay, that's our, that's our task this, this morning. First, the New Testament Gospel is the Old Testament Gospel. I'll ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 that was just read. We're going to just look again at verses 1 through 8. As Paul introduces this passage, he, uh, he makes it very, very clear that he's about to tell us what the essential Gospel is. Now, It's certainly true that the gospel of Jesus is everything that's true of Jesus. It's everything that the Bible has to say about Christ. But Paul is saying, here's the really, here's the really foundational piece of it. Here's the essential thing. This is of first importance. And, and before he gets there, he says, I'm going to tell you the gospel. (laughs) And, and it is, he says, "I, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are saved. Is that, is that pretty clear? He's saying, this is it. You want to know the gospel? This is the heart of it right here. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. A little later in chapter 15, he explains what, what it is that would render his preaching and the faith of all Christians vain. And that one thing would be if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. But he says, but now Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of, of those who will be resurrected. And, and he knows that that's true because he's, he met the resurrected Christ. And he met a whole bunch of other people who met the resurrected Christ. 
He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he gives us a couple of that clauses. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to more than 500 at one time and then to James and the the other apostles, and then Paul says, as if to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And when Paul says Christ died according to the Scriptures, what Scriptures is he talking about? The Old Testament. The Scriptures that were available to the people that he was speaking to. By the way, bear in mind, he's talking to Gentiles, and he says Christ died according to the Scriptures. The Old Testament prophets talked about the dying of Christ. And then he, he said he was buried and he was raised again according to the Scriptures. He's telling Gentiles that God had been talking about this for a long time before it happened. Okay. I want you to notice that while the Gospel, again, is rightly understood to be the whole teaching of the Scriptures about Christ, that which Paul says is of first importance focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's going to be important as we go forward. The first thing the New Testament clearly asserts about the Gospel is that the New Testament Gospel is not new. It's the Old Testament Gospel. The second thing that the New Testament declares about the Gospel of the Christ is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the one that was prophesied. He's the long-promised Messiah that the Old Testament prophets talked about over and over and over. The word Christ means anointed one. It is the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament word Mashiach, Messiah. It's applied in the Old Testament to a number of individuals, including kings, including at least one bad king, Saul, because he was ordained, he was set apart for his work, he was commissioned and anointed by God. But we're going to see that the discussion that Paul is talking about, that the person Paul is talking about is the one he calls the Christ. And he's the one that was recognized as the Christ. Very special person by the early disciples and by us. In John chapter 1, there is an amazing um, narrative. Many of you uh, know it very well. It's very familiar to you. But we're going to look at some excerpts in verses 19 to 51. The story, of course, is that John the Baptist was baptizing, uh, and uh, baptism of repentance, and he was... He was paving the way. He was declaring the coming of the promised Christ. And the Jews asked him if he was the Christ or if he was Elijah or if he was the prophet that Moses had spoken of that was coming. And he said, no, I'm not. But there's another one who's coming. And the implication is he is. There's a man who's coming who existed before me and I'm not worthy to tie the strap of his sandal. And they said, okay, well then if you're not the Christ, why are you baptizing? And and what did he say? Well, he, he said, 
He said, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus walking toward him or walking by. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now bear in mind, that's the first thing that John proclaimed when he saw Jesus approaching. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A little later, verse 34, he said, I have seen and have borne witness that this, this one, is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. One of them was Andrew, who was the brother of Simon Peter. And he looked upon Jesus and again, he saw, he saw Jesus walking by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So twice, the first thing that John says when he sees Jesus is, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And they hung out with Jesus for a while that day. And then one of them, Andrew, ran and found his brother, Simon, Peter, who is, becomes Peter the Apostle. And he says to him, we have found the Messiah. Which translated, John the Apostle adds, which translated means Christ. We have found the Messiah. Now does that sound like there's some precursor to this idea of the Messiah? Like there's someone expected? It doesn't make any sense unless there was, and of course there was. The next day, he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, Jesus did. And Jesus said to Philip, follow me. And then Philip was from the same city as Andrew and Simon. And Philip had a friend named Nathaniel. And Philip went to his friend Nathaniel. And what did he say to Nathaniel? He said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <laughs> Nathaniel was, uh, he was uh, a skeptic. He was hard to convince. Uh, but he finally agreed to, to go with Philip and meet Jesus. And when, and, and when he did, Jesus told him things about himself that no one but God could know. And what did Nathaniel say in response? He said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Amen. Here are the things, just some of the things, the big highlight things that John the Baptist and this, these first disciples acknowledged about Jesus in John chapter 1. First, John the Baptist said Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That means He is the long-promised sacrifice for sin. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of God. The disciples declared these things about Jesus. He is the Christ, the long-promised Messiah. He is the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. He is the Son of God, and He is the King of Israel. Now I have a question at this point, and it's not incidental. It's important. Which part of what John the Baptist declared about Jesus did the disciples acknowledge, and which part did they not acknowledge? Okay, very good. That's true. Christ found them. He called each of them. What 
of, of the things that John the Baptist declared about Christ, what did the disciples acknowledge and what did they not mention? They didn't mention the part about him being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They recognized him as Messiah, Son of God, King of Israel, the one that the prophets talked about. They didn't mention that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that will be important when we start to see what the apostles later and what Jesus himself declares to be critically important about what the prophets said about Jesus. What did Jesus himself say about, uh, <laughs> about the long-promised Christ? In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the Jews, and he's, he's been giving a series of, of proofs, if you will, of witnesses that he is who he claimed to be, that it's not just his witness that stands alone. It's the witness of John the Baptist. It's the witness of Jesus' miraculous works. It's the witness of his father who declared from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the witness on which he really camps out and spends time is the last one, and it is the witness of the Scriptures, the Old Testament. And he says to the Jews, verse 39 of chapter 5, the Gospel of John, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. That's the title of this series. It is these that bear witness to me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You want life? You go to the Old Testament looking for it? The Old Testament's talking about me, and I'm the one who gives life. Earlier in this same chapter, he says that the Father is given to the Son to have life in himself and he gives eternal life to whomever he wishes. Verse 45, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. At the end of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, Jesus says, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if a man is raised from the dead. Jesus is the long-promised Christ. He said that He was. The apostles acknowledged that He was. And the heart of that which proved that he was, and there were many, many proofs, miracles, many fulfilled prophecies, the, the place of his birth was prophesied, 300 prophecies about the first coming of Jesus that he fulfilled in detail without exception. But look at what Jesus focuses on when he says, here's what the Old Testament said about me, and this is what you need to pay attention to. This was on Resurrection Day, right? He had, he had been raised from the dead. And two of, his, two of his disciples were walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And, uh, and they were very upset. They were not happy. It says they were sad. <laughs> the day Jesus was resurrected, they were sad because they didn't buy it yet. They didn't understand what was going on. Jesus approached them and they were they were. Uh, prevented from recognizing him. That itself was miraculous. 
And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? Love the way Jesus baits people, you know. <laughs> and they, as if he didn't know what they'd been talking about over and over in the Gospels. He knew what everybody was talking about. They said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. See, they see a huge disparity between those two things. That he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of all the people, but he was delivered up to the Jewish rulers and he was crucified. How could that be? But we were hoping that it is he who would redeem Israel. See, they were okay with him being the Son of God, the King of Israel, the One of whom the prophets had spoken, they were fine with Him being the long-promised Messiah. What they were not fine with is Him being crucified. And they weren't the first ones, were they? And they said, some women among us said some things that were amazing. They said that they went to the tomb and Christ wasn't there and that an angel announced to them that He was still alive. He was alive again. But him they did not see. And uh, <laughs> he said to them, verse 25, listen to this. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. You believe some of it, but you don't believe all of it. And then he says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory. And he's talking about suffering to the point of death. He'll make that clear in a little bit. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. It's exceedingly important that we understand the nature of Jesus' rebuke here and why it was fitting. Again, there are two parts to the declaration these men made about Jesus the Nazarene. They expected the first part to be true of the long-promised Christ. They did not expect the second part to be true of Him. And what Jesus called foolish was that they accepted only part of what the prophets had said about Him. Long before Jesus came from heaven to earth, the rabbis of Israel had divided the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah into two separate witnesses. There were the witnesses that they embraced as being true of the long-promised Messiah, and there were the witnesses about the suffering servant. And they did all kinds of gymnastics with those prophecies. In some cases, they took those prophecies and said that they were talking about Israel doesn't work out so well when in Isaiah 53 it says, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, he died. But they, they tried to set aside those things. In fact, in many sects, branches of Judaism, passages like that are marked out as simply unsearchable. They don't bother with them. But as we're going to see very decisively in this series, the prophets 
had presented both of those sets of declarations as true of the exact same person. The long-promised king of Israel and of all creation is also the suffering and dying servant. The problem was not a failure of God to be clear. (laughs) It was the hardness of the hearts of, of Israel to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. See, a man who does not believe that he needs redemption doesn't like to be told that he does. And the Jews were puffed up with the belief that they were the special people. They were the ones with the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and the covenants and they were special and they were okay with God. And so when when they read that the prophets told them that they weren't, they figured out how to explain those passages away. As they approached the village where they were going, the village of Emmaus, says that Jesus acted as though he would go further. They urged him to stay with them, and he did for a while. He stayed with them. He sat down and he broke bread with them. And then it says in verse 31, their eyes were opened, and these two men recognized him. And at that instant, he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they arose that hour and they returned to Jerusalem. I guess it was the middle of the night by then. And they went back to Jerusalem about seven miles and, and they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. And, and they were, what they were talking about is the Lord really has risen and he has appeared to Simon. And while they were talking about these things, he appeared in their midst yet again. And he said to them, listen carefully, guys. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, I already told you this stuff before I died. I told you this stuff. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Of what things? Not only of the death and resurrection of Christ, which they had seen, but they were to be witnesses of the fact that those things had been prophesied by God for hundreds of years. And he said, and behold, I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. That He's talking about the Holy Spirit. You shall stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And that happened on the day of Pentecost. Just a little while before his death and resurrection in Matthew 16, you remember that we just saw Jesus said, I told you about this stuff before I died. In Matthew 16, before his death, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And how did they respond? Peter said, (laughs) Peter who always spoke what the other guys were thinking. 
He said, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. If Peter had gotten his way, beloved, we would all be everlasting toast. Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. See, man's interest is to have our best life now. And God's interest for those whom he calls as his people is that we will share in the suffering of Christ. Do you know what Jesus then went into talking about after this passage? about how his disciples needed to die in order to live. In Luke's gospel, after his death and resurrection, the resurrected Christ reminded his disciples that even while he was still with them, he had very very clearly told them that he had to suffer many things at the hands of the Jewish authorities and be put to death and raised up on the third day. In that passage, the rebuke throughout that whole Emmaus passage is that they had embraced part of what the prophets said about Jesus, but not all of it. And so he made sure they, they understood all of it, and he called them to embrace all of it. And, and this is after he was raised from the dead. They still weren't getting it until, until he graciously persevered with them and explained things to them. You remember in John 2 when, when uh, he said to the after the turning over the tables at the at the temple, he said, uh, "Tear down this this uh, temple, and I will raise it up in three days." And it says right there, almost parenthetically, it says, "After he was raised, the disciples figured out what he was talking about, that he was talking about his own body." Let me ask you this: How many times in the Gospels did the disciples acknowledge that Jesus had to die? and be raised from the dead. I looked for quite a while and I couldn't find it. Might have missed it. But from what I can tell, the disciples who walked with Him for three years and heard Him say that He had to die and be raised from the dead didn't like it. You know what they talked about when He talked about that? They talked about who was going to be greatest in His kingdom. Just like the two on the road to Emmaus who said, we thought he was the one who was going to usher in the kingdom of God. We love the end point, guys. But, but Jesus is saying, the prophets talked about my death and my resurrection. <laughs> because that's the only way that forgiveness comes to sinners. All right, the heart of the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts 17, verses 1 through 3, uh, it's talking about Paul. He traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, came to Thessalonica, and there was a synagogue of the Jews. And listen to what it says, verse 2, Acts 17. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. You see the two parts there. The first, the long-promised Messiah has to suffer and die, according to the prophets. The second, Jesus is that Messiah. Well, what about Gentiles? What about 
the gospel that was given to Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's talking to Cornelius and his buddies that came to see him. And they're Gentiles. And he says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things that he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And then listen to this last part. And he, Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who had been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And the only way that could happen is if he died and was raised from the dead. Even when the gospel was being presented to Gentiles, the historical witness of the Old Testament prophets was front and center. Brothers and sisters, to believe the biblical gospel, the whole thing is to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that that means that He's the very one whom the prophets in the Old Testament had always said would come from heaven to earth live a sinless life, die on a cross, and be raised from the dead. And this is foundational to our proclamation of the good news. I am not saying that if you leave out the fact that the prophecies have all talked about Christ in your gospel statement that no one's going to get saved by that. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that that's part of the gospel. And when Paul gives us his bare-bones synopsis of the gospel, that's front and center. It is according to the Old Testament Scriptures that Jesus had to die, that the Christ had to die and be raised again from the dead. See, the gospel, guys, the gospel is not, (laughs) wow, here's something we never expected. God sent His Son from heaven to earth to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sins and raised Him from the dead so we could live forever with Him. Who would have ever thought that God would do something like that? That's not the Gospel. He did all those things, and that is the Gospel, but but the idea that that was new information is completely foreign to everything that the New Testament says about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it should be foreign to what we say about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The idea that, that Christ coming from heaven to earth stands in some kind of historical vacuum, that God never talked about it until it happened, cannot be allowed to be set out there in front of lost sinners without being challenged. Now, I know a lot of times we don't get very far in our conversation with an individual. There may be very little information we get to, to bestow on them, but, but guys, whether you're planting or watering or or seeing the fruit come, your objective is to get the gospel in front of people who need to know Jesus. And it's important that the gospel includes the declaration that God talked about this for a 
not just 1,500 years. In the garden, he said, the seed of the woman will crush Satan on his head. That was long before Moses. The gospel is, this is the one that God's been talking about ever since the Garden of Eden. This is the one who was promised through all the prophets in every generation of mankind since Adam. This is this is that seed of the woman who would crush Satan on his head. This is the long-promised King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the one that God said would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is the one whom God said would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Because we're all rebellious sinners and we are lost and dead and eternally separated from God unless this is true of the Christ. The One who was promised has come. And we know exactly who He is. And His name is Jesus. That's what we proclaim to all men everywhere. Is your Gospel message deeply rooted in the Old Testament as well as the New? Or does it make no reference to the fact that God foretold the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus for many centuries long before He came from heaven to earth and fulfilled all those prophecies. Now if you say, well, I could never manage to get all that into a conversation. It took me 15 seconds to say what I just said. Why is this so critically important? Because Christianity isn't just another truth claim. The Gospel isn't one of many possible paths to God and faith in Jesus isn't a suggestion. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Creator and Sustainer of all things and He existed before anything else. If the best that God can do to inform the world about the person and work of Jesus is to have some men write down what He did for three of the 33 years that He walked this earth the first time, that's not all that impressive considering who He claims to be. We worship the God who knows the end from the beginning. In the Old Testament prophets, God said that that truth, that He's the one who knows the end from the beginning and reveals it, that's what sets Him apart from all the false gods that men have contrived. He knows and reveals the end from the beginning. One of the two great tests that God told Israel to apply to determine if a man who claimed to be a prophet was a true prophet or a false prophet was that he had to bat a thousand when it came to the things that he said would happen. If they didn't happen or if they happened differently than he said, Israel was to take him outside the camp and stone him to death. Because the God that he represented is the God who knows the end from the beginning. Beloved, Christianity stands or falls based on whether or not Jesus actually came and did what the prophets in the Old Testament said he would come and do the first time he came from heaven to earth. And he fulfilled every single one of those prophecies in perfect detail. Everybody and his dog has a truth to set before men these days. The options are endless. Very many of our young men and women have largely thrown in the towel 
when it comes to figuring out which of those truth claims has substance. In fact, the only absolute truth that many of them will agree to is that nothing is absolutely true. Agnosticism and atheism are growing exponentially in our generation, and and I have to say this, especially among young men and women raised in evangelical Christian homes. Meanwhile, we, many of us, are calling the greatest proof of the legitimacy of the biblical gospel too antiquated, too ancient to be relevant to the modern mind. Jesus rebuked his own disciples for being slow to believe what the Old Testament prophets had clearly foretold about his death to atone for sin and his resurrection that proved his victory over sin and the curse. I don't don't want to see a show of hands, but I want you to ask yourself this question. How many of you could make even a five-minute case to demonstrate what the Old Testament said about those two events, the substitutionary death of Jesus and his resurrection from the grave to be exalted forever to glory. If you can't make that case now, stay with us because you will be able to by the end of this series. Let's not help level the playing field between all the many truth claims when in reality the truth blows all the others out of the water. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The gospel that we bear is the incomparably good news of the long-promised Christ that God has been proclaiming to this world ever since His atoning death and resurrection became the greatest need of all mankind. And that means ever since the first sin. The good news that we proclaim is wonderfully marvelously, miraculously old news. Loving Father, thank you. Thank you that you have called us to share that which you have been declaring since the dawn of man, ever since the need for salvation arose. Father, make us faithful to proclaim that which your prophets died to proclaim. Use us, Father, make this world know that we serve the God who is and that His Son is our only salvation. We pray it in His precious name. Amen.